What is going on? It is Sportsnet Today here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, with you for the next couple of hours. The People Show will take over after that. And a very special day today. I am here live on location at Andrew Sherritt on East 1st here in Vancouver, just off head their products with Milwaukee reps. You can get exclusive one-day deals. Enjoy a barbecue as well. You know I'm excited for that. Plus, every purchase enters you into a draw for either an M18 Fuel two-tool combo kit with a hammer drill and impact driver or an M18 Fuel Power head string trimmer. So lots going on. It's already busy here. You want to make your way down, check out the sales, maybe check out the barbecue as well. And hey, come say hi. I'm here with producer Lena again from 9 to 11 and then Bick and Randeep take over for the people show so lots going on here at andrew sherritt uh, if you're in the market for anything you're going to want to check it out and come on down and say hi 650 650 is the dunbar lumber text line get your thoughts in throughout the course of the show the smart alternative is a dunbar lumber on bridge street in ladner or arbutus in vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com and it is almost I don't want to say prospect season because it's really only a weekend. I, I don't know if you can call it a season when it only lasts for, you know, four days or so. But, yeah, the Canucks Young Star Tournament, it's back and it gets going this weekend in Penticton. I know there's a lot of excitement always when this tournament happens from fans, from the media, who many of them get to go to Penticton. There's nothing wrong with that, certainly. I know it's a big deal for the team. And obviously, this is the one in the fir- uh, first one in a few years. So it's doubly a big deal this time around to have it back. And yesterday, the Canucks released the roster of players that they're sending to, t- to participate in the tournament up in Penticton. And as much as there's a lot of excitement about the tournament, about the fact that it's back, hey, you get a little sneak, t- sneak peek at Canucks hockey, you get to see some of these young players you've been following. You know, I also noticed a lot of disappointment online in the reaction to our station, when you see the roster and you think, ah, okay, well, there's not exactly those blue-chip, high-end guys highlighting it that you're really, really legitimately excited to see in action. So let me know, 650-650, are you disappointed that the Canucks roster for the Young Stars tournament isn't a little bit more studded, star-studded, isn't a little bit better than we're seeing? Now, having said that, you know, there's still a couple of players that I think it's going to be pretty interesting to watch. Linus Carlson, probably top of my list, and he's a really interesting prospect because he had such a an explosion in terms of his production and really boosted his stock last season in Sweden. And that's the type of player in a setting like this, you know, he's going to be one of the older players. He's somebody who's already not just played in a high-level pro league in Sweden, but had quite a bit of success there, put up some impressive numbers. So going against much less, lesser competition up in Penticton this weekend, you would like to see him really kind of flex his muscles and dominate a little bit. Now, having said that, it's also, you know, he's coming over to North America for the first time. He's getting acclimated. He's getting introduced to the Canucks organization, learning the coaching staff, the player development staff. That's all true as well. So as much as I can look here and say, okay, I really want to see Linus Carlson show up in Penticton, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not going to overreact if he has a quiet few days. It's a weird tournament. It's such a small sample size. There's only so much you can really take away from what any individual prospect does, right? So if Linus Carlson goes out and, you know, maybe it's not the the overwhelming kind of dominance you'd like to see from him, I don't think you can actually be that worried. 
Because, again, it's such a small sample size, it's hard to sometimes really thrive at these tournaments where you're thrown together, you don't know your teammates, you don't know the coaching staff. It's not always the best environment for someone to really show off. Now, on the flip side, I think the other guy who's probably near the top of the list for a long time is Danilo Klimovich. Second-round pick from a couple years ago, guy who stuck the whole season with the Abbotsford Canucks in the AHL as a very young player for that league, had some nice moments, also had some you know criticism levied at him, very understandably so for a young player transitioning to North America. You'd love to see Danilo Klimovich kind of show off that experience he's learned. But the flip side of that is, and you know, as I said with Linus Carlson, okay, if he struggles, don't overreact. I would also say with a player like Danilo Klimovich, if he excels, don't overreact. Because the thing we know about Danilo Klimovich is he's got the tools. He's got that high-end talent. This is the perfect environment to kind of show off those tools. But the questions about Klimovich are more the hockey sense, the hockey IQ, how he processes the game, the defensive side of things, the attention to details, and tournaments like this typically are not where you're going to see that progress from players. So it's exciting. You know, you're hoping for a few gifable moments that get people excited on Twitter that'll get us talking. We would love to see it. You'd certainly rather all of your players have a really good tournament up there than not. But it's also the kind of thing where it can be difficult to take away too much uh, from a performance over a few days at one of these prospect tournaments this year up in Penticton. Let me know who you're excited to see. Is there anyone that you really want to see if they've made any progress, see where their game is at in the first few days uh, of the kind of new season with the Penticton Young Stars tournament. The other interesting note I would say is uh, it's interesting to see that Jet Wu is still there. And I know there's still, you know, we still get questions about, hey, you know, is Jet, can Jet Wu be that long-term partner for Quinn Hughes on the right side? Obviously his stock is small. career, but Jet Wu will be there and maybe he'll have a chance to, to show it. A step forward this year. Uh, this one from Dan in Fort St. John says, it's not young stars for the Canucks. It's more like, air quotes, young, air quotes, stars. That's a very, <laughs> a very fair comment uh, from Dan in Fort St. John. This one from Rager says, I was disappointed years ago with how little high-end prospects we have in our system. Doesn't surprise me one bit after trading two first-round picks two years in a row. We saw this coming years ago. This one, Chris from Nanaimo. I'm not disappointed because of how they've treated their depth. I expected it not to be high in talent there, and that's fair, right? That you, you kind of knew this coming in, that it wasn't going to be this really incredible star-studded group of prospects at this tournament. I think the point that I think the point that uh, Rager made there, right? That he kind of saw this coming, and specifically after trading two first-round picks two years in a row, that you were always going to kind of be left with this bereft prospect system a little bit for the Canucks and what really stands out for me is it's not just those two first round picks but in the last four drafts they've only picked four times in the first two rounds right they've given up not just the two for two first round picks but also two second round picks so the guys they've taken in the first two rounds over four years it's Pod Colson, Hoaglander, Klimovich and Lekaramaki and obviously Pod Colson and Hoaglander they've already graduated to the NHL so you, you can't hold that against people but all of a sudden you're only left with you know, two high-end picks from the last four years that are even still eligible for this tournament, and LeCaramacchi is going to be in Sweden. And when you're looking not just at this roster, but in general, we all know, I think, rebuilding this prospect pool is going to take time. It's not the kind of thing that happens overnight, right? It's frustrating that the new management group wasn't able to add draft picks for this year's draft in Montreal. 
but it's a long-term project. It wasn't ever going to be revolutionized over the course of one summer, of one season, of one year in charge for Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford. The most important thing is they just have to start making their full complement of premium draft picks. Again, that's what stands out. If you think if, if, if they had picked, you know, eight times in the first two rounds over the last four years, yes, I understand that means JT Miller's not here. I understand that means OEL and Connor Garland aren't here. I'm not saying it would be better for the team overall, but you would obviously see a dramatic difference in where their prospect pool is. And I think that's going to be a really key storyline to watch with the Vancouver Canucks this season. Obviously, we're all going to be locked in on what they're doing at the NHL level. We all want to see, you know, what happens with Bo Horvat and his contract extension. There's a million storylines to pay attention to at the NHL level. But from an organizational perspective, I think how their prospect pool develops is also going to be a major, major storyline to keep an eye on. Who are those guys that you are really going to be watching throughout the course of the year? The young players, the prospects in the Canucks system, not just at Penticton this weekend, but throughout the course of the season to see what kind of steps they can make. And there's two that really stand out to me. And one, I mean, he's barely even a prospect at this point, but he is still technically a Canucks prospect, and it's Jack Rathbone. And with Jack Rathbone, it's not as if this is his last chance to make the NHL. That's not the case. But this is a golden opportunity for him to establish himself as a legitimate, bona fide NHL player, and not just a guy who's going to be you know, your seventh defenseman, but somebody who's going to be a regular in your lineup and helping move the needle, helping you get to where you want to go as a player. He's got an incredible opportunity to do that. I would bet on him doing that. I think when you look at how the Canucks defense stacks up, he's going to be one of their six guys that you want to find a way to get him on the ice there because of his skill set, because of his way of, of the way the league is trending. But Jack Rathbone to me is uh, uh, there's two Canucks prospects that I think have to have really big years, uh, you know, whether it's in the NHL or elsewhere, and he's one of them because he has a chance right now to make this team better, to kind of add an element on the blue line that outside of Quinn Hughes they don't really have anywhere else. And if he can step up and do that, yeah, I think it raises the ceiling of what the Canucks are, are, uh, are capable of this year. And the other guy, and it's no surprise, they just used their first-round pick on him. It's Jonathan LeCaramacki, right? I talked about how they're lacking those high-end picks in the system because some of them have graduated and they just haven't had, had that many. Well, LeCaramacki's that, right? He is that blue-chip, high-end talent that you could pretty easily forecast being at the top of an NHL lineup not next year, maybe not the year after that, but not that far down the road. You really want to see him play like that type of prospect in Sweden. And it's not going to be a panic situation if he doesn't, right? It's not going to be, oh, my gosh, they made the wrong pick. They blew it. He's a bust. But just to feel good about the strength of the prospect system and the likelihood of being able to integrate guys down the road when you need that cheap talent in the lineup, you really want to see Jonathan Leckermacki show that he is that high-end talent, that he was that guy who could have gone, you know, 7th, 8th in the draft, as a lot of people expected before he ended up slipping to the Canucks. It's Sportsnet Today here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, with you until 11 a.m. today. Keep your thoughts coming in, 650-650. Minor Matt in Abbotsford says, I'm not excited for any of the current, current prospects at development camp, but I am extremely excited for when the tournament comes to Doug McCallum's 60,000 Steed Stadium. Uh, that's from Minor Matt. And I, I've, made a, uh, I, I, I've made an agreement with Minor Matt that basically any time he, he sends in a joke about 
Doug McCallum's 60,000-seat stadium idea that I'm going to try to read it on air because it's always funny to me. And that's another great one. Yeah, another event that they could host at that beautiful new stadium they're going to build out in Surrey. Uh, Rager texts in, that's the thing. We can't rebuild the prospects system now. We have to be a playoff contender. So if anything, we should be trading away our first and second round picks to put it over the top. And that really kind of captures the difficult position that the Canucks are in right now, Rager, because they're not, you know, when Jim Rutherford was in Pittsburgh, what did he do? He traded his first round pick almost every year. And that made a ton of sense because you had Sidney Crosby still in his prime. Gino Malkin still in his prime. Chris Letang, you were a bona fide Stanley Cup contender. At least you wanted to act that way absolutely every season. It paid off with a couple of Stanley Cups in Pittsburgh. The Canucks, they're not there. To me, they're not at that level where you're going into this season saying you need to find reinforcements however you can to push yourself over the top. I just don't think they're quite close enough to that level, at least not yet. Maybe next year we're looking at it a little differently, two years down the road, and that starts to become a reality. But I don't think they're at that level where it's an imperative to start trading away your picks. And this is, you know, what management has decided to do, to kind of try to thread the needle here. They're not going to tear it down. They're not going to rebuild. They're not going to be trading guys in their prime like JT Miller in order for futures. But I also don't think you can be trading away what futures they have to bolster this roster. You're going to have to get creative. You're going to have to find other ways to build out the depth a little bit. Snoop the Dog says, do you have a wild card prospect who you think could put up a gangbuster tournament and propel into a strong ta- training camp in an unexpected NHL spot? The guy who stands out to me is Neil Zaman, who is one of the, you know, he was, I believe, drafted by the Colorado Avalanche uh, a few years ago in the sixth round. They chose not to sign him. He becomes a free agent. Uh, look, it, it's a long shot for him to make the NHL this season. He's in all likelihood is going to be in Abbotsford playing for the Canucks. You hope he can really have a successful first pro season in North America at that level. Maybe he puts himself to be in a, you know, late season call up type of position later in the year. But just because of his skill set, his size, his speed, the fact that, you know, he's pretty reliable defensively. If he uses this as a jumping board and then, as you say, you know, has a really impressive training camp, maybe I could see him sneaking out one of those spots in the bottom six on the fourth line for the Canucks. That's the guy who stands out for me. Chris from Nanaimo talking about which prospects he wants to see or he's going to be watching this year, not just at the prospect tournament, but also throughout the course of the season. He says, for me, it's Jet Wu. Hopefully he can up his game and take a step with Shannon Burroughs off the books next year. It'll be nice to see him move into one of those spots. And, you know, for Jet, Jet Wu, again, uh, at this point, anything you get from him at the NHL level is is found money because it got to the point last year where, you know, the Abbotsford coaching staff, they were dressing him as a forward. He was not one of their top six choices in Abbotsford to be on the blue line in key games. And you can point and say, well, hey, that's a development problem in Abbotsford. That's fine, but that's still a really tough spot for Jet Wu to be starting from. I see what you're saying, Chris. You would love to have that extra depth on the right side that we all know is a major problem for the Canucks prospect system. But at this point, I don't think you can really expect expect anything uh, from Jet Wu going into this year. 650-650. We'll continue talking prospects throughout the course of the show. Harmon Dial of The Athletic will join me at 10 o'clock. He's going to be in Penticton covering the tournament. So we'll get his thoughts on what to expect at the tournament and kind of the strength of the Canucks prospect system and the future of the Canucks prospect system overall when we chat with Harmon at 10 o'clock. I did want to talk about another Canucks thing because we've we've been seeing 
these, you know, the captain skates that are always traditionally happen when, when the players start arriving in town before the season, pre-training camp. And one of the things that caught people's eye and caught Twitter's attention certainly yesterday was at one of these informal captain skates, you know, you're, you're in line combinations, you're in defensive pairs, and lo and behold, Oliver ekman Larson and Quinn Hughes skating together on a pair. And reports were that it was Quinn Hughes skating on the right side of this pair. And that's already been a big topic of discussion, right? Because, look, we all know the Canucks blue line, it is weighted to the left side. They don't have a lot of high-end right side talent that you feel really good about putting in your top four. So do you have to get a little bit creative? Do you have to try moving Quinn Hughes or potentially OEL over to that side to see what you free up? So early returns, and again, this is captain skate. You know, this is not the coach saying it, but maybe this is just the players who've, maybe they've talked to the coach about it being a possibility and they want to practice a little bit. Early returns are, well, we might see a little bit of Quinn Hughes on the right side, at least in preseason, at least in training camp. So with that in mind, what are the other new ideas you'd like to see up and down the Canucks lineup? The, the new wrinkles, the new bits of tinkering from Bruce Boudreaux. And the coaching staff, because that's one of the exciting things about this year, right, is, yeah, Bruce Boudreaux made changes, and the new coaching staff made changes when he took over midseason last year, but now is the first real opportunity, and again, it is a new coaching staff in large part beyond Boudreaux, now is the first real opportunity for them to kind of, you know, get in the lab and cook up some new ideas, some ideas we haven't seen before in Vancouver, like Quinn Hughes on the right side. So what are those new wrinkles you would like to see the Canucks at least try, tinker with, early in the season, or in preseason. 650-650, let me know. And the one that stands out for me, and I think there's at least a good chance we see part of this, because we started to see it last year. But the one that stands out to me is, I think it's time for Elias, for the Canucks to embrace the defensive upside of Elias Pettersson's game. And that means I'd like to see him be at least a somewhat regular fixture on the penalty kill, which again, we saw last year, and he was effective there. But beyond that, at 5-on-5, five five, I'd like to see them challenge Elias Pettersson to match up against the best players on the other team from time And I don't think he's going to be the primary matchup guy, matchup center. We can debate, you know, just how so I'm not sure you're going to lose, use Elias Pettersson as the no-doubt-about-it defensive specialist matchup guy. But let's not forget, this is a player in his rookie season was drawing comparisons to Pavel Datsuk, and not completely unreasonably so. We all see the way he processes the game. We all see the way he thinks the game, right? His anticipation, the, 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 the puck skills that allow him to make these impressive defensive plays. Let's lean into that a little bit. You've got this player who's very, very well-rounded, right? He's not just an incredible offensive player. He's also somebody who can tilt the ice, who can hold his own in the defensive end, and I think has the potential so, yeah, at least in, a, in, in different spots from time to time, be used in that matchup role against some of the other team's best players. Now, the counter-argument, and I understand it, is, well, he could be their best offensive player, so do you really want to limit his production by putting him into some of those tougher minutes? And that's fair. But I also think if you want him to be, you know, a no-doubt top-ten center, maybe to threaten, hey, he's going to be a top-five center in the league someday, if you want him to get to those heights... Well, he's got to be able to win those tough minutes, right? That's what the best centers do. That's what the best centers do consistently. So I'd like to see them challenge Elias Pettersson a little bit. I think he's up to it. I think he could thrive in that role. But that's one of the new wrinkles I would like to see that we haven't seen much of in the past is Elias Pettersson being used against some of the other team's best lines. 650-650. Uh, get your thoughts in. 
about what some of the new wrinkles you would like to see in the Canucks lineup. Again, new coaching staff, while Bruce Bodrew returning, some other new coaching staff, Trent Cole, Mike Yo, around. We might see some new wrinkles that we haven't seen before. Keith and Kit says, how about Pod Colson centering an all-Russian line? And I, I've seen this suggestion come up. Obviously, you have Pod Colson there. You go out and you get Andre Kuzmenko. You add Ilya Mikheyev in free agency as well. And you say, hey, hold on, they're all wingers, but how fun would it be to have that all-Russian line? I just think you look at it. I mean, look, transitioning a player who is on the wing to center full-time in the NHL is, is very, very difficult. Very, very difficult because it's such a tough position to play at the NHL level. There's so many details you have to be concerned about before we even get into, like, face-off technique and all of that. So I would be very, very wary to take a young player like Vasily Podkolzin, who's finished last season really strong, is looking to build on that in his second year in the NHL. I would be very wary of disrupting his development by trying him out at center. And look, hey, maybe it's a, a couple of practices at training camp or a scrimmage or, you know, one period of a preseason game and you just, you just throw it out there to see how it looks. All right, that's fine. But I wouldn't try to, you know, force a round peg into a square hole as it is here. If Paul Colson is going to continue to develop and thrive on the, on the wing, you're just fine with that. Don't worry too much about moving him to center. The other thing is, I mean, all of a sudden now with JT Miller signed, and JT Miller kind of being locked in down the middle from the perspective of the coaching staff, well, you're deep at center, right? So if you move Vasily Podkols in there, who are you moving off? Are you you know, are you know, playing him on the fourth line? I just don't think it's, uh, it's a position of need at this point for the Vancouver Canucks, not at the NHL level. Anyways, uh, this one, a new wrinkle. I'd like a decor that is effective and not overpaid. Well, effective, you never know. Effective, we could get that. And look, I mean, I'm excited. I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about prospects, I'm excited to see what kind of element Jack Rathbone can add to the Canucks blue line. I'm even excited to see what Travis Dermott can do in a full season with a full training camp with the team. And that was actually going to be one of the other suggestions that I had. And I, I don't know that this one would go particularly well because it hasn't always in the past, but how about we see a little bit of Travis Dermott in the top four? Maybe there's a way to get him as you know one of your matchup defensemen. And again, that has not been historically a strength of his game. But let's say you do move Quinn Hughes over to the right side and he's playing with Oliver ekman Larson. Well, somebody's got to step up and, and fill that other spot in the top four. Why not Travis Dermott? I think he's got the puck skills, the skating ability to at least be worth a look in that spot. Now, I think you could also turn around and say, well, if you're considering using Travis Dermott in that role, that really speaks to a bigger deficiency in your blue line, and that is very, very fair. But if we're going to be trying some new things, if we're going to be tinkering with some ideas, I have no problem getting a look at Travis Dermott in the top four. Keep your thoughts coming in. 650, 650. What new wrinkles in the lineup do you want to see the Canucks try this year uh, with Bruce Boudreau and his new coaching staff getting their first training camp with the team. Uh, we can keep talking prospects, too. Which prospects are you excited to watch at Penticton? Which prospects are you excited uh, to watch throughout the course of the season for the Vancouver Canucks? Up next, he is a senior editor at The Athletic. My guy, Israel Fair, will join the show. We'll talk a little Canucks, talk a little talk about his Seahawks beating Russell Wilson, all that and more. Again, Izzy Fair, senior editor at The Athletic. It's next on Sportsnet 650. Oh, I jumped the gun a little bit there, but what's going on? Welcome back. It's Sportsnet today uh, here at Sportsnet 650. Israel Fair, senior editor at The Athletic, is going to join me momentarily. I am here live on location uh, at Andrew Sherritt. Uh, they're hosting a series of sales events across BC. I'm here at the East First location in Vancouver. 
just between Boundary and Highway 1. Come down, check out their products. There's Milwaukee reps here to give you some demonstrations. You can get exclusive one-day deals. Plus, enjoy a barbecue, and every purchase enters you into a draw for either an M18 Fuel 2-tool combo kit, a hammer drill and impact driver, or an M18 Fuel Power head string trimmer. Uh, just before we get to Izzy, you know, come down, look at the deals, do your shopping, uh, but also come say hi. And I, I want to give a shout-out to Steve, a, a listener who just came by and said hi, enjoyed chatting with Steve. And he also told me a fantastic story, which is that uh, his neighbors are, are expecting a, a little boy very sure, soon, a baby boy, and congratulations to them. And they are naming the boy Thatcher in honor of Thatcher Demko. So there you go. That If you needed a, a demonstration for the approval rating of Thatcher Demko, Demko amongst Canucks fans right now, this couple naming their baby, naming their newborn son Thatcher in honor of Canucks goalie Thatcher Demko. So that really drives that one home uh, for me. Again, Israel Fair going to join me momentarily here. That's a big commitment. That's a really big commitment. That's a bigger commitment than the JT Miller contract. <laughs> yes, it is because it's for life. <laughs> you can't or, change the name five years in. Well, like I guess I don't know can you because obviously when you're an adult you can legally change your name. Right. But if you're just the parents of a kid, can you go to the government and be like, hey, we, we screwed up. We'd like to change the name. <laughs> unexpected. Uh, there's, unexpected. Always, there's always the concern when you, uh, when you do the investment of buying a player's jersey, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh man, what if, they, what if they start not playing well or they get traded and I'm going to be stuck with this jersey? Or, yeah, I'm going to be stuck. I, I bought a Louis Erickson jersey and now, uh-oh, uh-oh, two <laughs> weeks into his you, first man. season. That's on you, but it's a whole other level of commitment. It's a yes. whole other level of commitment uh, when you uh, when you go ahead and name your kid Thatcher after Thatcher Demko. It's not a bad name though. I, I enjoy the name. So, you know, you, there, there's there's bright sides even if it doesn't go uh, go exactly how they want it to go. Six fifty six fifty again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're here on location at Andrew Sherritt. So come down and uh, and say hi if you can make it down this way. Um, we were talking, uh, we're just waiting to get Israel Fair on the line right now. We were talking earlier in the show about the, uh, the Young Stars prospect tournament. We'll get into that and more, uh, because joining me now, he is senior editor at The Athletic, uh, Israel Fair. Izzy, so I know you, you don't have kids yet, maybe sometime oh. down the road. I don't know if you just heard the story I told, but it was uh, a, a listener came by and, and talked to me here at Andrew Sherritt and said his neighbor is going to mm-hmm. name his son, they're, they're expecting very soon, Thatcher Demko, or Thatcher in honor of Thatcher Demko. Uh, so I think the question is, I mean, when you do, if you do have a child, <laughs> is it is it going to be Gino for Gino Smith? <laughs> I don't know. It, it takes a... Probably a couple more wins on Monday Night Football, uh, but that was uh, yeah, that was a thrilling victory for the Seahawks. So it's uh, it's gone up the power rankings for sure. Yeah, I mean, I what was uh, take us through the because you're you're a Seahawks fan, and I I know I've heard from a lot of Seahawks fans where it was kind of edge of your seat drama in that game, as it was for even people who aren't necessarily uh, you know super invested either way. What was uh, what was the viewing experience like for you? Take us through the roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, tons of fun. Uh, watched at a, a local establishment that uh, pretty much uh, was exactly how you described it. Uh, people were, were really into it. There were a handful of Seahawks fans around, but by the end of the game, most of the people there were, were, were really rooting for Seattle to pull it off because it was, I guess, for, for a lot of people seen as so unlikely. Uh, and you're just going to look at 
what's transpired with the Seahawks over the last few months and then the end of the Russell Wilson era and, and getting that game at home Monday night football to kick off the season and then watching Russell Wilson on the sidelines as nobody could understand why they would kick a field goal from 64 yards out but uh it was yeah it was it was amazing it was uh it was really great and look yeah Geno Smith you know, I, I said maybe a couple more wins on Monday Night Football. If if he wins nine games this year, that's that's another plus for the uh, for the the baby name discussion because uh, I think so. You've, you, I think people will take you've, that. You've bumped it up to nine wins now. You're you're asking for five over five hundred from Gene yeah. Smith because I was wondering maybe it was hey they got the win on Monday night over Russell Wilson. It's all gravy, right? But no, you're saying okay, you did it once. Go out and do it eight more times this year. Yeah, for Gino. I mean, for, for the the season overall, that was. <laughs> Easily the Super Bowl and uh, felt great. And look, they can lose the next yeah. four games, and I'll still be feeling good about the, the first one. But yeah, I mean, if Gino wants to to take that mantle of you know having children named after him in the Pacific Northwest, it's going to take at least the 500 season. <laughs> Uh, fantastic. All right. In conversation here with uh, our pal Izzy, uh, Izzy Fair from The Athletic. So the, the big topic really going into, um, you know, this weekend is the, the return of the Canucks Young Stars tournament in Penticton, obviously with the other Western Canadian teams. And, you know, look, it's not the most uh, enticing, exciting group of prospects that the Canucks mm-hmm. are going to send this year, Izzy. But from kind of a big picture point of view, you know, I mean, even if they are sending a blue chip guy, how much can you really learn about him at this tournament? But from a big picture point of view what do you think the value of these tournaments in general but specifically for the Canucks having this tournament back and hopefully being a regular fixture on the calendar again yeah it's something that the people that that go and and scouts and other top level executives in the hockey world put some value on even if that value is just getting a bunch of people together in one place for a number of days and if it's not huge in terms of evaluating the players, though I think you look back at some of the past young stars and some of the standouts when the Canucks had a bit of a stronger farm system, uh, there, there were some, some lessons to be learned. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's great. Uh, you look at uh, what it does for, for Penticton and, and them getting some, you know, not full NHL hockey, but, but a weekend of games with NHL jerseys, that, that's a plus. And, uh, if the Canucks are able to continue this on, I mean, when it looked like it was going away, the, there was a lot of disappointment uh, that, that this tournament wouldn't last. And now it seems like with the other, as you said, Jamie, Western Canadian teams on board, that there's going to be yep. the commitment made to, to keeping this tournament going. It's, even if it's just, you know, hey, this is the, heart, the start of hockey season, it signals that to... Um, the, the young players it gives them an opportunity to play in that NHL jersey, which is not something that a lot of them are maybe going to get to do at the NHL level. But if it does spark something for a, a number of the players, and uh, I, I think it also provides, uh, even if there isn't that you know Elias Pettersson or Quinn Hughes type prospect at this camp for either some of the older ones or some of the prospects that have some expectations, this is an opportunity for them to to be leaders on the ice and to, to pick up some of those cues. So uh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's great. And I know <laughs> I'm not going, but I know the people that make the trip, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's certainly a favorite. Well, yeah, the media loves it because uh, it's an opportunity for some of them to go to <laughs> to go up to wine country uh, in September, <laughs> yep. which is never, never uh, a bad thing without a doubt there. Um, you know, looking at the, uh, the big club, the NHL team and the guys we know are going to be there and figure into it. 
you know, it was kind of funny, and I, I think it makes sense, but also we see, you know, the JT Miller saga end, and then not long after that, right, we're all talking about, hey, Bo Horvat doesn't have a contract all mm-hmm. of a sudden, right? And, and we all thought that extension was going to get done, and I don't think it's going to – it's not at the same pitch of JT Miller discussion, right, because Horvat's the captain and a homegrown player and all of that, but, I mean, how much risk, if any, do you think uh, is there of, of this situation with Bo Horvat now – you know, going into the final year of his of his deal being something of a distraction for the team. I suppose there is that that margin toward the end of the extreme where it, it could be could be an issue. And uh, the the one thing that stands out to me in regards to that bigger picture of this contract is uh, we've seen, and and I think a lot of these were were justified concerns and complaints coming from inside that that Canucks room and that. Bo Horvat was unhappy with a lot of things uh, about the way the the organization was was handling things. You look back at uh, the team's COVID outbreak. You look back at the the off season coming off of the bubble, and uh, he was, I think, for the first time really in a Canucks uniform, unafraid to put his name behind some of those concerns. And so, uh, I I don't imagine that it's based on his comments the other day that it's it's something that's going to be a daily churn like the JT Miller situation. But it's, it is one of those instances where if there's a seed of doubt and that has some sort of impact in the room, depending on how, you know, the, the team starts. I think we're all really fascinated to see what kind of start this team has going back to last year, very similar group. That was a disaster of a start to the season. They're coming back here. Yes, they've got some of that momentum, if you will, with Bruce Boudreau having been retained and trying to push through what they were able to do toward the end of last season. But this is this is a big test. And if that contract isn't done before the start of the season, is that going to start some of that internal churn, internal conversation? I, I think that's possible. And I, I do imagine that the Canucks are in a position and Horvat's in the position that they'd like to get this done before then uh but when you when you hear what the potential numbers could look like if it's something close to a ryan nugent hopkins number toward the low end Mm -hmm. to hearing about you know seven million seven million plus maybe even on on the high end that's a that's a a pretty wide gap of outcomes and uh look Horvat's done pretty much everything that you'd want from a captain with the exception of having you know some serious winning i know there are a lot of fans who put quite a bit of stock in the way that he played in the bubble playoffs and and he was he he stepped up and he hasn't really had the opportunity to do that a ton because quite frankly the team hasn't been good enough for that but this is this is yeah the spotlight is is going to be on whether he signs that contract now and there's going to be the expectations ratcheted up that okay no more excuses (laughs) no more slow starts you you're you're the captain of a team that's supposed to be going to the playoffs let let's see that, and if the contract's not done, you know, same same questions, but the tenor and and the theme, I guess, around those those answers would be a little bit different. And uh, it's it's a big year, you know, regardless of if he signs the contract before the start of the season or not. Well, and it's a you know the point you make there about the slow start. And look, I I kind of come down on the side of I just have such a hard time believing that 
the contract isn't going to get done, right? From everything we've right. heard, and yeah, it, it, it took it's taken longer than we expected. But it just I have a really hard time picturing it not happening. Maybe that's just a, an error in my thinking. I could be wrong. The point you make there about the slow start is interesting, though, Izzy, because and I think this is something you and I talked about when we were doing the morning show together mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. If there is another slow start from this team, there's going to be so much pressure. And really, I, I don't know if anger is too strong, but there's going to be a lot of, yeah, anger and questions towards the players, right, about why is there another why is another slow start happening uh, with this team. And you just look at it now that they you know, signed Brock Besser to a multi-year deal. They signed JT Miller to the long-term extension. Mm-hmm. If things go off the rails all of a sudden and Bo Horvat doesn't have that long-term deal, you know, you're going to feel the pressure to make changes, and all of a sudden he becomes you know, one of the easier candidates to do that with. For sure, and that's, I, I guess, you know, the, the, the threads that can go from today to the start of the season and then a few weeks into the season, whether the contract is signed or whether the contract isn't signed, there, there are some, some, some of those threads to pull where it's, okay, sure, he signs that deal, there's a commitment, the team gets off to a slow start, he's going to get probably the roughest ride that he's had in Vancouver because it's not yeah. just that you've been the captain for a long time, it's not just that this team has expectations. It's that you've now signed this contract that people have been talking about for a long time. And if, if the contract isn't signed, just like you said, Jamie, that's going to be uh, a whole other can of worms uh, for what this team is trying to accomplish. And uh, look, I, I think it's going to be really, really interesting because I think Horvat's been a, a pretty darn good player for the Canucks for basically as long as he's been here. There have been some incremental growths in his game. We know how dangerous he can be when the power play is operating at a high level. We've, we've certainly never seen him be uh, a dominant player at 5-on-5 five five in the regular season. But as I said earlier, there's those fans that still put a lot of stock into what you know playoff bow looked like and what that might look like. But he's been able to, to skate in, in some regards, because, you know, overall the, the overall team performance, because Everyone could look at the blue line or at the different parts of the goaltending or not having that depth. Well, some of those questions have been answered. To what degree they've been answered and, and what the ceiling is is a different conversation. But the focus is going to be squarely on him, especially now that that Miller contract has been dealt with. And that was, that was sucking up so much oxygen that it made everything else seem so insignificant. Well, he's been signed and people have their opinions on that, whether or not that was the right move. But that's, that's now been dealt with. We, we, we're going forward. We're going to see what this team can do on the ice. And if they're going to be good, Bo Horvat is going to be a central part of that. And I'm, I'm really interested to see what this contract looks like. I'm with you. I think that it's a pretty decent bet that something gets done before the season starts. But we're still going to be talking about it because it's, it's kind of that, that final piece here, that final commitment to this group. And there's certainly people that follow this team that aren't sure that pushing all the chips in on this group is the right decision. Yeah, no doubt about it. In conversation with Israel Fair from The Athletic here on Sportsnet today, Sportsnet 650. And one of the conversations I was having earlier in the show and throwing it out there to the listeners is, you know, we saw Bruce Boudreaux come in with a new coaching staff last season. And, you know, there were some changes or some new wrinkles, especially on the penalty kill. But a lot of it was just more about a different mindset, right? Maybe mm-hmm. more about a, a more aggressive forecheck. But this year, going into his first training camp with a completely new almost coaching staff, right, with with Trent Cullen, Mike Yo uh, yep. coming in and Boudreaux, 
it, it does feel like there's more possibilities that we could see different lineup decisions, different you know partnerships, pairings, trios, all of that that we haven't really explored in the past with the new eyes, with the fresh start of the coaching staff. You know, Quinn Hughes on the right side is a great example of that. Right. I threw out, hey, using Elias Pettersson maybe in more of a matchup role is something I would like to see. Is there something in that vein of kind of a, a new wrinkle, a new thing to explore that you would like to see Boudreaux and the coaching staff at least, at least as I said, explore or tinker with early in the season? I like the idea of Pedersen in, the, in that matchup role because then I think that opens up so many more possibilities with Horvat and Miller, assuming that Miller is going to play the bulk of his time at center. Uh, I think we've seen what the Horvat ceiling is in that matchup role, and it's a role that he's, he's able to handle uh, pretty well. If you look at the numbers, it's, it's always been pretty close to an even goal differential, and for someone in that role, that's pretty good. You know, like the expectations have to be different for a player that's taking on those tough matchups. If you're able to break even, you're doing pretty well. The best lines in the league, they're at that 60-plus percent share of the goals when they're on the ice, but you know, they're either lines with three all-star caliber players or lines where the coaching staff's able to to chase a little bit. And because of the dynamic of the players that they've brought in, I think Mikheyev especially, there are so many different combinations and duos that they can put together here. And I think you look on paper, okay, well, Miller and Connor Garland, those are two guys that if you put out there in offensively inclined situations, that could be, that could be pretty dangerous. Whereas I think when you look at Pedersen and, and who he could play with, Mikheyev, Pod Colson, you feel pretty good about what that line could do um, defensively or at least controlling play and still have the ability to strike and score goals. So that, I think that, that's one that, that I would love to see. How Pedersen would feel about that, I think, is, a, is an interesting question. <laughs> we know that going back to the, his rookie season, the first couple of years in the league, he, he thrived in, in those kind of situations. But it, it is a different ask when you go from being, uh, you know, the, at least in that rookie year in the first couple of years, you know, the star guy on the power play, we're trying to, trying to get you those shooting opportunities and at five on five you're the guy that has to score goals for us it would it would be a different mix and it's i think going to be a great challenge for bruce boudreaux who laid a lot of that groundwork like you said jamie the last half of the season but not having necessarily the flexibility or the freedom because he came in mid-season to really put his stamp on how he wants this team to play what he thinks are the the strongest strategic decisions to make there, there are some pieces here to, to really be aggressive. And uh, when you look at this team, even if you're, you know, blue sky, super optimistic, they're going to need a couple of aggressive shifts to put themselves firmly in that playoff conversation. I think that they'll make it this year, and that wasn't my thinking last year. That wasn't my thinking the year before. So I, I think they've made enough strides, but that is with the, you know, attaching to them a couple of aggressive swings. So being more aggressive on the PK, which we did see. And looking at this lineup, looking at the pieces that are here, and finding a way to make it different than just your standard lines one through four, and this is how we're going to deploy them. And even with going back to Travis Green, that real strong separation between top six and bottom six, and the fourth line being a matchup line, I think we'll see the fourth line certainly soak up some of that. But because of the other pieces there, and of the three centers, I really do think Patterson is the one that's most suited from a skill set perspective to fill that role. 
So I, I, I would love to see that. I'm game to see Hughes on the right side as well, though I, yeah. I think that the decision with Hughes is a little bit different than the one with Pedersen. I think with Pedersen, you have a little bit more leeway to try to do what's best for the team because you do have a few more options, whereas with Hughes, I would be more inclined to, if, if it is, you know, if there's a somewhat of a drop-off between him on the left and the right side, forgetting who, whoever he plays with, whoever his partner is, I want Quinn Hughes to be completely optimized to do Quinn Hughes things. So if, if, he's, if that's any sort of drop-off and it's like, hey, you know, we need him on the right side because we're lacking depth on that side and we feel we can make things work with, with him and, and OEL or some other combination, I'd rather just maximize him and figure out the rest of the issues. And there are certainly some concerns on the back end before committing to that fully. But I, I'd like to see it. I know we have started seeing it a little bit at these scrimmages, and we'll have an opportunity through training camp in the preseason to see how that looks as well. Hey, just before we let you go, Izzy, I think last time you and I talked on air, uh, the Blue Jays were, were reeling coming off that brutal Angels series where they got swept at home. Now they're rolling a little bit. They're playing well. Uh, they're all of a sudden they're they're in the, the yep. top wild card spot all by themselves after beating the Rays in the second game of the doubleheader yesterday. How are you feeling about the Jays right now? Man, what a streaky team. And so, Oh, my so goodness. It, it's unreal. The Bo Bichette of it all. Uh, look, he's, he's on <laughs> one of these all-time heaters right now and carrying the offense to an extent that I think people would expect Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to be the one doing so. But Bichette stepped up. He looks like the guy when he came up at the end of the 2019 season where he was basically impossible to get out. His number has been right at that level. Um, they've got enough pitching at the top end to make things work. Uh, Long term, if you're looking at what they've done and, and trying to project that out to what that might look like overall, uh, you know, certainly not the foundation that you'd like to see, but they've got, they've got enough with this group to, to make a run of it, uh, especially with the Yankees basically being a one-man team themselves right now with Aaron Judge. Uh, look, it's, it's going to be fun, and the Mariners are a lot of fun right now. We'll see how the rest of this series with the Rays plays out. But we're, we're going to get, I think, a, at least one pretty decent matchup if the Jays are involved with Tampa or Seattle in that wild card. That, that'll make for, for a real fun week. And, look, I think if you look at both of those teams, as, as great as Seattle's been, and they've got, they've got a little bit more pitching depth that, that you feel better about, but they don't have that high-end offensive ceiling that the Blue Jays do. And, look, if someone else jumps in with Bichette, you know, if Kirk starts to get going a little bit, if Ladd goes on goes on a tear, then they're they're right there with with the best teams in the American League. There's no doubt. Izzy, always appreciate the time, my man. I'll let you get back to your day. Thanks for doing this. You got it, Jamie. Anytime. Take care. That is Israel Fair, senior editor at the Athletic in Vancouver, joining me, talking a little Canucks, little Seahawks, little Jays towards the end there. As well, I do want to talk uh, a little bit more baseball later in the show because Aaron Judge, another massive night for the Yankees slugger last night. And I'm not usually excited to uh, to give kudos to a Yankee, but uh, you got to tip your hat to what Aaron Judge is doing. Really, really fascinating season that he is having. I want to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, also, I- I'm doing some research. During that interview with Izzy, I was doing some research on Babies named after athletes. So I'm going to get, I've got some hard data. 
to share with you later in the show. But uh, speaking of hard data, you know he loves the numbers. Uh, Harmon Dial of The Athletic. We're going to chat Canucks and the Young Stars Tournament uh, in Penticton with Harmon. That's coming up next. It's Sportsnet Today. I'm Jamie Dodd. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd here with you. Sportsnet today on for another hour until the People's Show takes over at 11. I am here at Andrew Sherritt on East 1st in Vancouver. The People's Show will be on location here as well. Together with Milwaukee, Andrew Sherritt is hosting a series of sale events across BC. Come check out their products with Milwaukee reps. Get exclusive one-day deals. Enjoy a barbecue plus... Every purchase enters you into a draw for either an M18 Fuel 2 Tool Combo Kit, Hammer Drill and Impact Driver, or an M18 Fuel Power Head String Trimmer. So come on down, check it out. It's already uh, it's already busy. It's already happening down here. The barbecue hasn't even started yet, so I'm really excited for that. But come down and say hi. Uh, stop in and say hi to us uh, when you are down here. As I mentioned earlier, we did speak to a listener who told us about his neighbors naming their baby Thatcher after Thatcher Demko. Caribou Mark texts in, My brother-in-law named his newborn Thatcher just last month. His wife isn't aware that he did it after Demko. Well, you probably want to clear that one with your partner there, but another another Thatcher named after Thatcher Demko. Uh, well, I'll, I'll uh, unveil some statistics on this phenomenon uh, a little bit later. Um 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber next uh, text line. You can uh, keep your thoughts coming in. Harmon Dial of The Athletic is going to join us momentarily, chatting a little bit about the uh, the Young Stars Tournament in Penticton. Look ahead to the season a little bit as well. Earlier in the show, we were talking about the Young Stars Tournament and which players you're excited to see play. We can uh, keep that conversation going, but now very pleased to be joined from The Athletic uh, by Harmon Dial, who, of course, covers the Canucks and the NHL for The Athletic. Harmon, thanks for doing this. How are you? Absolutely. I'm doing, uh, doing very well. Uh, so it's uh, the Young Stars Tournament getting going on the weekend, and are, I, I'm given to understand that you'll be making the trip to Penticton. Is that is that correct? Yep. All right. All right. I mean... You know, we always uh, there's always a lot of hype uh, for this tournament from fans, and I think from media, especially because some of them get to go to wine country in September. So, how excited for you personally are are you for that trip? Yeah, I mean, I'm not much of a, a wine drinker, so that's uh, that's that's not on my to list. <laughs> but I, I love Penticton so much that I actually went out and took a specific vacation out there with some friends. Uh, just a couple months ago, went jet skiing, and the beaches there are, are incredible. So, wow, um, definitely. I mean, Penticton, and then following that up with a Whistler training camp. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, that's a lot better than just one training camp in in Abbotsford last year. <laughs> that the jet, yeah, the jet, the jet ski. That's uh, that is fantastic stuff. Uh, that's very impressive, Harmon. All right, on on to the actual stuff, the hockey that we're we're uh, talking about here. I mean, I talked about it off the top of the show, and we all saw the reaction, right, online. And this is expected, but it's not the, the most exciting high-end group of prospects that the Canucks are going to be sending to this tournament this year. But of the guys who are going, who are the one or two guys that you are you know, really excited to get a chance to watch in person in Penticton? Yeah, I think for me, Linus Carlson jumps off the list, and he's really interesting because it's crazy to think about the difference a year can make for a guy's development because last summer Carlson was on the cusp of turning 22 and on the heels of 
completing uh, a campaign in the second tier Swedish uh, Allsvenskan league where he finished below a point per game, right? And the odds are heavily stacked against um, players with that kind of profile to, to kind of make it in the NHL. But then he last season takes a monumental step where um, he ends up being one of the best goal scorers in the SHL. Obviously, breaks um, Elias Pettersson's rookie scoring record, and, and of course Carlson was was older, so there's uh, there there's that sort of context to be considered. But for him to take that kind of quantum leap uh, in a year, you know, he transformed from someone who looked who looked like having very long odds of ever playing in the NHL to now being a legit prospect. And I think that's why the club was excited to to sign him to an entry-level contract. And when you look at Carlson, it's interesting, too, because he is the sort of player where a lot of guys get thrown the label of he's a late bloomer. But in Carlson's case, it could actually be uh, applicable because height-wise, he was growing into his frame right up until when he was 18 or 19. And so sometimes it can take guys time to to adjust to to physical growth uh, and, and just kind of becoming used to their bodies. And in Carlson's case, coming to North America, I'm going to be really interested to see how his skating keeps up, right? Because he's got a lot of tools in terms of his size, in terms of his shot, uh, in terms of his hockey sense and uh, two-way details that could translate well to a pro environment. The skating is the only thing that's been a bit of a concern, and it's going to dictate whether he ends up being a center, whether he ends up playing on the wing, and what kind of impact he can ultimately have, um, whether it's with Abbotsford in the American League or potentially down the line in Vancouver. So I'm excited to see him on a smaller, faster-paced uh, environment, a smaller-ranked, faster-paced environment. And, and with a player like Carlson, as you said, you know he ha- he already has the pro experience and he's been effective at that level in Sweden in a in a tough league. He's a little bit older. What are those things you're watching for in an event like this, where you know the level of competition isn't as high, but it's also kind of a difficult uh, situation for players where you're thrown together in a makeshift team, you know, new coaching staff and all of that. You don't just want to go based on oh hey he scored a couple goals, but with a player like Carlson specifically, what are you watching to really see at an event like this? Yeah, and for me, it's it's the skating. It's the stops and starts, how quickly he can get up and down the ice because center's a really demanding position um, when it comes to the sort of two-way responsibilities. And Carlson, from a smarts perspective, has the detail-oriented style to adjust. He's always been a really responsible player. In fact, when he was drafted, he was initially sort of billed as a defensive center. But if you can't sort of keep up in... Um, in in, in, the, in the, on the smaller ice surface, you kind of you kind of have to be shifted to the wing where there's a less uh, two way demands and responsibilities. So um, for starters, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be looking at what sort of situations do they deploy him in, in, in terms of what uh, what position. I think that could be telling whether they play him on the wing or the center in terms of how they view um, his game um, in North America going into going into this season, and then secondly, how his uh, how his skating looks. Uh, another one of the players that uh, I think people are excited to watch in Penticton and, and throughout the course of the season as well is uh, Danila Klimovich, who, of course, came over, played in Abbotsford, you know, wasn't always in the lineup, but did play a, a significant number of games with the Abbotsford Canucks. Uh, you know, what are you hoping to see from Danila Klimovich? You know, not just in Penticton, but throughout the course of the season. What do you think would kind of represent a legitimate, meaningful step forward for that player? Yeah, I'm expecting a big season for him. In talking to Ryan Johnson at the end of last season, he 
he seemed to sort of echo that uh, that sentiment and, and talked about the fact that for a player like Klimovich, it was obviously a challenging transition. It's very rare for for starters, for an 18-year-old player to stick in the AHL for an entire season, that's a very tough learning curve, especially because he was playing in a pretty obscure, low-level pro league before coming over. So uh, a big challenge there, obviously learning a new language, learning, um, getting accustomed to a new um, new country, new teammates, new systems, new coaching staff, all those factors all put put together um, it was more of a feeling out process than anything, get, trying to get comfortable. And so heading into the sophomore AHL campaign, I think this is where you'd now hope for him to be a more regular sort of middle six consistent producer uh, for this uh, Abbotsford Canucks team. Someone who is in the lineup every night, someone who is not just chipping in some secondary offense, but is a go-to offensive piece, someone who can contribute on the first power play unit, and so those are the sorts of steps that I'm looking for. And when it comes to earning the trust of the coaching staff, I think what you're looking for is, is, some, is some progress when it comes to the maturity of his pro details, right? Because with Klimovich, he's got so many tantalizing skills when it comes to his puck handling ability, when it comes to, his, um, when it comes to, to the velocity of his shot, when it, when it comes to his size. I think it's where he can frustrate you is with sometimes his decision-making with the puck and some of the turnovers that he makes at the offensive blue line and how, and his commitment away from the puck to the defensive side of the game, that's often lack, lacking. And so for him to sort of earn that rope and, and earn offensive opportunities, he needs to be a bit more committed to, to playing a more responsible sort of two-way style. So showing that, two-way responsibility and and that effort away from the puck is going to earn him the offensive opportunities which can then hopefully lead a a significant boost in production but either way because of how challenging the transition would have been last year as just an 18 year old um i think uh i I think last year was more about just kind of finding your footing and and trying to survive this year's going to be about your top prospect let's actually see you thrive now in conversation with Harmon Dial of The Athletic here on Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. And, you know, one of the things you talked about there, which is very important for all young players at the AHL level, right, is earning the trust of the coaching staff. And, you know, remember there's a new coach, a new head coach in Abbotsford of Jeremy Carlton taking over as Trent Cull gets promoted to the NHL club. There's been lots of fan questions and criticism about the development process with Trent Cull as the AHL coach. I think maybe some fair, maybe some not as fair. But do you have a sense of, you know, how the club wants the development process to change or how it might change with Jeremy Colleton in place now as the new head coach in Abbotsford? Well, for starters, they've certainly given him a lot more resources, right? They've been able to overhaul the player development department. Obviously, the Sedins got got shifted there and um, with how smart hockey, with how smart they are as hockey minds, that's a significant boost. Obviously, adding Mikhail Samuelson as well. So clearly, the the organization's committing a lot more to player development, just as an overall uh, overall theme. And I think that's critical because one of the things that really made uh, Rutherford and Alvin successful in Pittsburgh was this ability to constantly take take guys from Wilkesbury and have them play in the NHL. And, and a lot of these guys were undrafted or, or mid-round picks. Um, whereas I think in Vancouver the last uh, few seasons, 
you look at the sort of players that have been able to make an NHL impact, the prospects, whether it's a Patterson, whether it's a Hughes, whether it's a Besser, they've sort of been dropped in straight from whatever league they were developing in before. So in the case of Patterson, the SHL, or Besser and, and Hughes uh, coming straight from the NCAA, you haven't seen a lot of guys come through or orga- come through the system organically uh, down in Abbotsford or, or it was Utica before. And I think for any team to build contender quality depth, you're going to need to mine players to sort of who can who can who can provide contributions somewhere along the lineup for really cheap. And that's the sort of bit, that's the biggest challenge in a cap uh, environment. And I think step one of overhauling that the biggest sign that we've been able to see is they're clearly investing more resources there. And we'll see the specifics of how Carlton um, changes things in terms of his coaching style and, and how he manages relationships with someone like uh, Klimovich or Archie Baines, obviously coming into the fold as well. Well, and from a big picture perspective, you know, we can focus on who's there in Petington this weekend, who's going to be in Abbotsford this season, but there's also a long-term process that the organization has talked about of rebuilding the prospect pipeline, establishing that organizational depth. And, you know, I find the Canucks are in a really interesting position where they're not in, you know, a position to kind of tear things down and trade off veterans for future assets. They decided not to do that with JT Miller, but they also kind of desperately need to restock the cupboards and build that depth. How difficult is that process, Harmon, when you're in the position of trying to take those steps forward as an NHL team and win now, but also kind of aware that you need to improve that depth in your organization? It seems like kind of a very uh, a very narrow needle to try to thread. Yeah, it's extremely challenging, and it's especially um, difficult because with the last regime, they gave up a lot of first and second round picks uh, over the last two or three seasons. So that's obviously going to put you put your farm system in uh, in a deficit with uh with respect to how much capital you have and the other challenge has been that the players at the canucks sort of you know may maybe could have explored moving for future assets when you consider for example their surplus on the wing wingers just aren't worth as much on the trade market as as we've kind of found out this offseason and as a result the canucks are kind of stuck in a spot where i think they're going to they're going to have to get unconventional, and, and Jim Rutherford is going to have to find his next John Marino-type defenseman, or or, uh, uh, or, in, or in Vancouver's case, you're going to have to find your next uh, Troy Stetcher or Chris Tanev-type college-free agent signing. Um, obviously, I think Kuzmenko provides uh, a good sort of template of, he's obviously not a prospect, but you're going to need to consistently land top European talent and sort of do what Chicago did for a while, where, okay, you may, you may not find an Artemi Panarin-type player, but consistently the Blackhawks were able to find guys like P.U. Suter, um, Dominic Kubelik, uh, Dominic Cahoon, and to just be able to take guys um, from the KHL or other parts of Europe and sort of just drop ship them in as middle six contributors. Um, obviously, that's the story of, for example, how Ilya Mikheyev got his start with the Leafs. That's, I think, going to have to be one of the ways to counteract the fact uh, that the prospect pool isn't in uh, isn't in a strong spot is finding talent from Europe, finding talent from the NCAA, and essentially you're going to have to invest a lot in in I, I think overseas scouting 
and 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 just making sure that you're you're able to find those diamonds in the rough as difficult as that is uh you and uh you and Drantz have a, a piece up at the athletic right now kind of taking stock of the Canucks prospects and specifically guys in the pipeline who could at least theoretically help the NHL team this year. And obviously number one on that list, and he's kind of in that process almost of graduating away from being a prospect, is Jack Rathbone. And, you know, I look at Rathbone Harmon going into this season with the way the game is trending, his ability to play with speed, to rush the puck up the ice, all of that the element that he brings that the Canucks don't have a lot of beyond Quinn Hughes – I look at it and think they need to find a way to get him regularly on the ice, but it's also kind of a complicated situation with all of the the left-handed shots on the blue line. How important do you think the element that Jack Rathbone brings could be for the Canucks if they are able to find the right way to use him and slot him in in the lineup on a night-to-night basis? Yeah, with Rathbone, it's it's really interesting because kind of like you said, if – all the left-handed defensemen stay on their strong side, so that's referring to Hughes, that's referring to OEL, that's referring to Travis Dermott, then I think Rathbone would have a tough time beating out one of those guys, especially because it's, I think, easy to become enamored with prospects, and I've heard some people say, well, Rathbone should slot into the lineup ahead of Travis Dermott, and look, if Rathbone shows a, a massive step forward in training camp and is, the, is decisively the better player through preseason, then sure, but right now... Dermott has already proven himself as a high-end bottom pair defenseman who can provide some of the sim- some similar attributes with respect to the puck-moving ability and the skating, but with improved defensive solidity compared to Rathbone. And he's done it with tons of NHL experience. He's proven in that role. Whereas, obviously, Rathbone last year, he made the team out of camp and, and struggled initially through his first nine games before being sent down. The point I'm trying to make is, if you keep all those lefties then on their strong sides, then I think he is on the outside looking in, uh, at least to start the season. Obviously, injuries can, can always uh, hit. And you look at a player like uh, Tucker Pullman and his health status, that could, um, that could force a player like Dermott to have to move to his offside, which would open a spot for Rathbone. I think with Rathbone, the biggest thing that I'm going to be looking for is, is essentially how responsible he can play. Because... For as much as we know we can, what he can do offensively, he was over a point per game in the AHL, we know he can move the puck, we know what, what kind of shot he has, but even in Abbotsford, there were moments where, for instance, let's say def- defending the rush or positionally, you would see the occasional lapse that would lead to, lead to a goal against or, or a high-danger chance, and that just can't happen in an NHL environment. I think we also saw there were certain moments in his NHL cameo last year where for example, I, I distinctly remember a, g- a game against the Minnesota Wild, a, a fast forechecking team, a fast, heavy forechecking team, where Rathbone just seemed a little bit overwhelmed, trying to make quick decisions with the puck, and his puck management was uh, was pretty suspect. So those are the details that I think kind of need to uh, be ironed out for him to earn the trust of uh, earn the trust of Boudreaux, because kind of like you mentioned, outside of um, that responsibility factor. He has so many tools um, that, that lend themselves to being significant assets uh, at the NHL level. Just before we let you go, Harmon, as I mentioned, you know the you and Drance have the piece up at The Athletic. 
talking about different prospects who could theoretically at least contrib- contribute. You know, beyond Jack Rathbone, is there kind of a dark horse name on that list that you're keeping your eye on as somebody who could surprise people a little bit and maybe challenge for a spot out of preseason? Out of preseason, I find difficult just because when you look at a player like, let's say, Will Lockwood, there's just so much fourth-line competition. And the fact that yeah. Lockwood doesn't contribute on, for example, the penalty kill, I think that's tough to slot a player like that into your lineup when they don't contribute on either special teams. Uh, and, I mean, outside of that, they're just, uh, like, I really like Carlson, and I think that if he hits the ground running, that he could be potentially a second half of the season sort of recall option. But with the adjustment process of coming over to North America, I find it difficult difficult to think, especially with how crowded the team is up front, that for him to make the team out of preseason, I mean, the, the the Canucks are just so much deeper than they've been in, in years past. I mean, you're looking at a scenario where we're talking about could Nils Hoaglander be sent down to the, to the AHL, right? Wow. So when you're having those kinds of conversations, it's difficult to sort of peg sort of dark horses, especially when it comes to prospects that are still kind of looking to establish themselves at the American League level. Well, and that ultimately, I mean, it's a, obviously it's a good thing to have that depth at the NHL level, but I do think you can look back in the past with this organization, uh, Harmon, and see, you know, maybe times where they brought p- people up to the NHL level a little too quickly. So, you know, ultimately it might, ult- it might be the best thing for some of the prospects to be quote-unquote blocked from making it to the NHL right now because it gives them time to refine their game a little bit more at a lower level. I agree, and Alvin um, and, um, and Johnson seem to echo that sentiment i remember at the end of um uh last season in in the conversation or interview i had with ron johnson he did mention that yeah there were probably a couple guys that uh that may that we fast-tracked a little bit that in hindsight would have been better off spending some time in the american league and i do think um i do think it's better to have a player that's a little bit overripe as opposed to a player that's thrown into an nhl environment a little bit too soon just because confidence can be such a fickle thing. You you put a player in an initial spot before they're maybe ready, and all of a sudden it can it can overwhelm them maybe a little bit, and it can sort of affect the way that they view their game. And all of a sudden they may start wor- worrying about whether they're actually capable of of making it in the NHL, as opposed to, um, for example, the way the Canucks managed Jack Rathbone last season. Just let him build up his confidence. Let him play games. Let him log a ton of minutes and then head into a season like this where now you look at him and Rathbone may not make the may not make the may not be one of the team's uh first six defensemen on uh, on opening night but i i, I imagine that he's going to at least make the 23 man roster for sure and that's the sort of environment where at least coming into this season he's going to be in a confident mindset after dominating the AHL so that's i'd rather players in that environment as opposed to players where they're kind of yo-yoing between the NHL and AHL and kind of maybe even doubting doubting their abilities and potential. Harmon, always really appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks very much. Uh, enjoy Penticton this weekend. Absolutely. Thank you. That is Harmon Dial of The Athletic. Uh, chatting Canucks and prospects and the, uh, the future of the prospect system as well uh, for the Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. It's Sportsnet Today. I'm Jamie Dodd here live on location at Andrew Sherritt on East 1st in Vancouver. Another half hour of my show coming up. Then Bick and Randeep will be taking over with the People Show. No. 
Oh, it's Canuck Central. Oh, excuse me, I've been saying Bikin Randeep this whole time, but it's actually Canuck Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. They will be on site uh, here at Andrew Share. Thank you to producer Luna, Lena for uh, setting me straight there. Lots more coming up. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, so keep your thoughts coming in. I want to talk about Aaron Judge and the season he's having and why it's so impressive to me. I mean, we all know, look, he's hit 57 home runs, but specifically why it's so impressive. Also, a little bit more on uh, the hard data behind naming your kids after professional athletes. That's coming up. It's Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. What is going on? Welcome back to the show. It's Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Another half hour here with you, live on location at Andrew Sherrod on East 1st in Vancouver, just between Boundary and Highway 1. Together with Milwaukee, Andrew Sherrod is hosting a series of sales events across BC. Come check out their products with Milwaukee reps, get exclusive one-day deals, and enjoy a barbecue. Plus, every purchase enters you into a draw for either an M18 Fuel two-tool combo kit with a hammer drill and impact driver or an M18 Fuel Power head string trimmer. Come say hi if you drop in. There's lots of people here already. We've had people stopping by and saying hi all day. It's fantastic. And, I mean, get excited because if you're coming down uh, shortly, Satyar Shah and Dan Riccio on site, ready to take over, coming up at 11 with Canuck Central. The, ce- the real celebrities are here uh, for you to come and say hi to. Uh, did have somebody earlier, a listener, come up and, and chat during the commercial break and mention that uh, his neighbor – are going to name their new baby boy Thatcher in honor of Thatcher Demko. We've had some other people uh, texting in Caribou Mark saying he knows someone who's done that as well. And this got me thinking, and here's the great thing, and I know this as uh, somebody who's recently become a parent. The The BC government actually publishes all this data about how many people are named what, and you can track it throughout the years, right? How many kids are named Jason? How many kids are named whatever? And you can see how it increases and decreases every year. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Have we seen an increase in babies named after various members of the Canucks, Lena? And lo and behold, last year in 2021, the all-time record for boys named Thatcher was set in BC. Now, it was only seven, so it's not, not, not a huge number, but it's trending upwards is my point. It's trending upwards. So they, they might be onto something here. What was the next name I told you to look what did up? You, what did, jet. Yes. Yes. I haven't seen a lot of fluctuation in Jet, although there was a surprising numbers of Jets, yes. I had to say. I don't know if it's after Jet Woo. I don't think so. But There was 18 Jets last year <laughs> which is in quite British a lot. Columbia, which is more, I would have guessed, more Thatchers than Jets. There you go. But clearly I'm out of, I'm out of touch with, uh, with boys' names in this province. The one that really stood out to me, because I started plugging in you know, various other young Canucks players into this tool, right? The one that really stands out for me is Elias. Yes. So in 2017, when he was drafted, so before he was, you know, household name, superstar player, 30, 30 kids named Elias in BC. In 2020, all the way up to 60. So doubled, doubled in just three years, Lena. You got to think that's the Elias Pettersson effect. Anyways, just a little uh, a Did little it go data. down last year or? Uh, this one, it did dip down to last year a little bit. <laughs> People were like, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> I was going to do it. If he was at a point per game, I would have done it. But nope, it's out. Maybe we'll see an influx of Jonathan Tanners We might. Through. We absolutely might. This one, te- We had a couple people text in. Uh, one person said, literally 90% of kids are named Bo after Bo Horvat. And Rager has texted in, what about Bo's as well? So Bo, not a significant. Well, actually, I, I take that back. In 2013, so when he was drafted, only five bows 
last year up to 21. The last couple of years, it's been 21. So, you know, in raw numbers, not a huge increase, but by percentage, pretty significant increase. And who knows? Maybe if we see that, uh, if we see that long-term extension, people will feel even more comfortable getting in early and naming their kid uh, after Bo Horvat. Anyways, just wanted to share that. A little bit of silliness here uh, on Sportsnet today. It could get a lot sillier. We went through a black oh, yeah. hole of, of athlete names. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, if, you, if you have any other suggestions that you want me to run through the old name machine on the BC government <laughs> website, let me know. Uh, Dan from Van says, you got to show PD that stat. I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to bring this up. If if I ever am interviewing Elias Pettersson in the, in the near future. That one's just going to stick between you and me and the listeners here. Uh, lead up. 650, 650. This one says, after today, my unborn baby will be named Jamie. Well, that's wow. very nice. That's very, very nice of you. Great name. I got to say, great name. Uh, Tyler says, how many Louis in the last six <laughs> years? I did look that up. Not a lot. Now, I don't think there was a, a, a noticeable decrease because of Louis Erickson, but it definitely did not catch fire. Uh, around uh, around the province of BC after Louis Erickson. 650-650. Uh, keep your uh, thoughts coming in about naming your kids after athletes. Uh, I, I've got requests coming yeah, in that no, I will people, do. I people will want do. you to do some research now I on their own do. children's names. <laughs> yes. I'll see if I can find some time before the end of the show to run those. But I did want to talk about Aaron Judge. Uh, two home runs. 56 and 57 on the season for him in Fenway against the Red Sox. And by the way, I have no idea. I mean, like I know the Red Sox, they're not playing for anything, but they are putting those pitches on an absolute platter for Aaron Judge. Just meatballs for Aaron Judge to smoke out of Fenway Park. But whatever, he still hit him 56 and 57. Now, last week on the show, I was talking about, you know, I'm not interested in the asterisk argument for Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire, or Sammy Sosa. You know, I know people are out there saying, hey, if he breaks the Roger Maris mark, if he hits 62, Aaron Judge is going to be the new Major League Baseball single-season home run champion. And I still don't subscribe to that, right? Unless Major League Baseball is going to strike those other ones from the record book, to me, those are still the guys. It's still Barry Bonds with 73. But as much as I don't think he's going to be the home run champ, if you wanted to tell me he's actually having a better, more impressive season at the plate than Bonds, McGuire, Sosa did when they were hitting 60-plus bombs and 70 and 70-plus in the case of uh, Bonds and McGuire, if you want to tell me it's actually, okay, he's not the home run champ, but he's having a better year, well, that one I can listen to because the thing is, when you're comparing numbers across eras in baseball and any sport, the context is so important. And it is so much harder. So much harder to hit home runs in this day and age, in this season of Major League Baseball, than it was when those guys were doing it in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, right? And all you have to do to really get a sense of that, I mean, you can look at how numbers are across the league and for each individual team and all of that. You can drill down, but all you really have to do is look at how far away he is from the next guy on the list. Aaron Judge has 20 home runs more than the next closest player in the league. He has 57. Kyle Schwarber is at 37. That is a massive, massive gap in this statistic. I saw somebody say on Twitter, nobody has had a 20-home run lead in Major League Baseball over the next closest guy in almost a century. Babe Ruth was the last player to do it in the 20s. That gives you a sense of just how rare it is to be this far ahead of the field in home runs in baseball. That's what makes, again, even if he ends with, you know, 
59 home runs. If he if he goes on a slump for the next couple of weeks here, doesn't end up breaking 60, I still think you could make a case that this is a more impressive home run season than anything that McGuire and Sosa did. Now, Bonds is a little bit different because he had the plate discipline as well. So it wasn't just the 73 home runs, which is incredible in its own right. He was just a monster at the plate in every possible respect in those few seasons in San Francisco. I still think you could put John Judge in that Bonds conversation, but it's at least closer. But when you factor in not just the raw numbers, but what he's doing compared to everyone else, I think this is as impressive a season as we've seen at the plate in a long, long time. And again, just 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 using the kind of basic metric of how far away past you, or how far away from the next guy were you, right? In 98, yeah, Maguire hit 70, but Sosa was just behind him, 66. Ken Griffey Jr. was threatening 60 in that year. There was a couple other guys up over 50. Even in 2001, and I kind of forgot this, but I was looking at it last night. Yeah, Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs, incredible number. Sammy Sosa was only nine behind him. Sammy Sosa just kind of casually hit 64 home runs that year. It's kind of been lost to time. We've forgotten it. But he was pretty close to Barry Bonds in that race. That's what really makes what Aaron Judge is doing stand out right now. It's not just the raw numbers. It's the fact that he's doing it in a really tough context where it's hard to hit home runs. Home runs are down. And he is just completely outpacing the rest of the field right now. And it got me thinking, okay, this is, I think we're going to look at this as one of those kind of unique seasons, not just in Major League Baseball, but really in sports. What are the other records for you, the other seasons that stand out like what Aaron Judge is doing right now? The ones where the raw total is impressive, but when you start to think about the context, what everyone else in the league was doing at the time, it gets even more impressive. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Let me know if any come to mind. I've got a few that kind of popped up off the top of my head last night. The one that stands out to me, the kind of the first one I thought about, I think there's a lot of parallels. Dan Marino throwing 48 touchdowns in 1984. And, again, we've seen a bunch of people eclipse 50 now, right? We've seen, you know, it's not necessarily a headline uh, event when a quarterback passes 40 touchdowns anymore in a way that it used to be. So you just hear 48, and maybe it doesn't blow your mind. But again, you look at what else was happening in the NFL at that time. The next closest guy had 32. 32 was the next closest in 1984 when Dan Marino was throwing 48 touchdowns for the Miami Dolphins. That's a 50% increase over the next guy. And you just, again, beyond even looking at the stats, we all know it was way harder. Way harder to rack up passing stats, rack up yards, rack up touchdowns through the air in the 80s. The NFL has done so much to increase that part of the game, to make it easier for quarterbacks and wide receivers and make it harder for defenses. So for Dan Marino to throw 48 touchdowns in a completely different version of the game than we have today, that one really stands out for me. Another one in hockey, Brett Hull, 86 goals in 1991. Next closest that year, 51 massive, massive gap. And I don't know if that always comes up when people are just kind of thinking about historic NHL seasons. But you actually think about just how big that gap was. And again, again, we're almost talking about, you know, a 50% increase over the next closest guy. That one is absolutely incredible. Some good ones coming in here. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Talking about streaks, records, years that are just so far ahead of the next closest guy that it blows your mind. Uh, Minor Matt, this is a really good one. 
and it's interesting too because it's something that we're not we're not going to see broken or threatened anytime soon. Uh, but this one comes in Cal Ripken Jr.'s Iron Man streak. Yeah, that one is fascinating. You know, obviously the Lou Gehrig one had stood for decades and decades and decades before Cal Ripken threatened it. And now it seems even more untouchable because we all know we're in the era of load management, right? It's just so hard to ever even conceive of a player being on the field that consistently. At the time, it was impressive, and it's only gotten more and more impressive as the years have gone by for Cal Ripken Jr. Another baseball one, Barry Bonds with 232 walks. I mean, Barry Bonds' whole stat sheet is just filled with these kinds of numbers. The the on-base percentage and the slugging percentage that he was putting up in those peak years in the early 2000s in San Francisco, they're, they're literally video game numbers. It's impossible to imagine uh, somebody doing that year after year like he was able to do it with the Giants. So, yeah, Bonds, 232 walks. That is a really good one as well. Another one that stands out to me in baseball, and it's not so much just the specific number, but how incredibly dominant he was in that time, Pedro Martinez in 1999 and 2000. So in 2000, he had a 174 ERA. And again, that is incredible no matter what era you're talking about, right? That's We all know that's a really, really good ERA for a pitcher. But again, in the year 2000, I mean, what have I been talking about? That's when McGuire and Sosa and Barry Bonds and all these other guys we're hitting 50 home runs a year when you had random guys stepping up and hitting 50 home runs a year. It was really, really hard to be a pitcher and really, really easy to be a hitter at that time in baseball. So for Pedro Martinez to have those dominant years back-to-back like he did, again, with the 174 ERA in 2000, it's not just that it's an incredible number on its own. He was doing it in a time where it was so, so difficult to get outs. That's what really makes it stand out to me. And the last one I'll share from the world of basketball, this is pretty recent, was uh, Steph Curry. In 2016, he had a record 402 three-pointers in the 2016, 2015-2016 season. Broke his own record by more than 100 three-pointers in one year. Nobody had ever eclipsed 300 until he went up over 400 in that season. I think the next closest that year, I was looking it up last night, was Clay Thompson, who was up in that high 200s type of area. So again, that is lapping the field in a major, major way uh, for Steph Curry when he set the three-point record that still stands right now. Glenn and Richmond says Tiger Woods lapped the field for years. There is no doubt about that. I don't know what the one stat I would choose to kind of illustrate that. It might be, you know, the Tiger Slam, not doing it in one calendar year, but winning all of the Grand Slams in sequence, wrapping over from the next year. That's probably the one that stands out to me. I don't know when the next time we're going to see that is. There's so many different stats you could look at to kind of sum up Tiger's dominance. But if we're going to talk about just one, I think that's the one that really jumps out to me. Uh, I like this one. Uh, In the 1974-75 NHL season, uh, Schultz, Davis Schultz had 475 penalty minutes. Andre Dupont was next with 276. Yeah, that's a big, uh, that's a pretty big gap right there in terms of penalty minutes. Uh, this is a good one too. Joe DiMaggio, 56 game hitting streak, missed one game and then won another, went on another 31 game hitting streak. And yeah, the 56 game hitting streak again. You just think there's so many of these records in baseball because it's been around for so long, right? The game has changed so much. 
in that time. But that's another one of those streaks where it's just hard to it's hard to imagine anyone really coming close to it, given how pitchers throw the ball now, given how the game has changed, the emphasis has been put on the home run over batting average. It feels like the 56-game hitting streak is going to stand for a lot longer yet. This one, 1982 Ricky Henderson. That's a good one. 130 stolen bases. Next guy, 54. And, yeah, you're playing in an era where, sure, people steal a lot more bases, right? That was 1982 for Ricky Henderson. But as you say, even in that context where the stolen base was much more common, I mean, he's almost tripling up uh, number two on that list was Ricky Henderson in that year, which is just absolutely Absolutely incredible. Keep your thoughts coming in. This was uh, the springboard was Aaron Judge, who is currently 20 home runs ahead of the next closest guy uh, to him in the the single season home run race this year. And again, as I said off the top, you know I'm not sure that I, I I'm not going to consider him the home run king. But if you wanted to make the argument that this was that this is the uh, you know most impressive home run season we've seen in a long time, even more so than Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa, I can get behind it just because he is so far ahead of the field. This one came in as well. Rain Gretzky uh, with 92 goals. That's an interesting one. Look, that's the record. That's the all-time record. So, of course, it's going to be in this list. But I was a little bit surprised. Yeah, that's not the biggest gap between first and second that we've seen, right? Mike Bossy had 64 that year. And this, look. I'm not I'm not coming on here to, to slander Wayne Gretzky's 92 goal season, but just in terms of how far ahead he was of the next guy. There was another 62 goal or sorry, another 60 goal scored that year as well in 1982. Just in terms of how far ahead of the next guy he was, the one that stood out to me was Brett Hull uh, when he had 86 in 1991. And the goals one is a great example because you look at it in recent years and it tends to be, you know, maybe a a five-goal gap, maybe getting up to an eight- or a nine-goal gap some of the times, but it's really, really hard to outpace the rest of the league in those types of categories. Matt from Mission says Shohei Otani, uh, what his ERA and on-base percentage are right now, is insane. And Shohei, I mean, is incredible because... You know, it's not as if he's lapping the field. He is the field. There's nobody else. The word unicorn gets thrown around a lot these days in sports, right? Sometimes, like just like generational, it gets misapplied. Shohei Otani is actually actually a unicorn. There is nobody else even coming close to doing what he's doing. So I think he's in a completely different conversation. Because as I said, he's not lapping the field. He is the field right now. And I don't think we're going to see... I don't think we're going to see anyone like him for a while. Yeah, Eddie Gregory, what's up? Yeah, you were talking about Tiger Woods. I found a career stat. From 1997 to 2013, Tiger was a combined 126 under par in major championships. Among the players with 90 or more rounds played in the same time frame, guess who's next on the list? That's right, Steve Fletch, who was a whopping 251 (laughs) strokes behind Tiger at 125 over par. Mickelson is third at plus 128. And Hunter Moran at fourth at 137. That is unreal. That's a good one, Eddie. That yeah. is a fantastic stat. Can Just thank you the internet. Pure dominance. Yes, yes. Shout out to the internet. That's pure the dominance. 
Yeah, that is laughing the field. That's exactly what we're talking about here. That one is completely, completely unreal. Uh, this one, 650-650, final few minutes of the show here before Sat and Dan take over. Rager texts in, in the 92-93 Calder race, Team Solani had 76 goals and 132 points. Uh, next closest had 32 goals and 102 points. The ro- it's a rookie record that will never be touched. I mean, the remarkable thing there is that you had two rookies breaking 100 points, which really just goes to show you what guys were doing in the early 90s. But yeah, just in terms of the rookie record now, the way the game has changed as well, hard to see anybody touching that Team Usulani one uh, anytime. This one from Tyler, I like this as well. Usain Bolt in his first Olympics when he pulled up and could have set an even higher bar for the 100-meter the record, or Michael Phelps, the undisputed goat of swimming. Yeah, those performances, and we don't always think of them in these conversations because it's kind of an every four-year thing where we decide to pay attention. But those displays of pure dominance, where they're just so far ahead the rest of the pack in their sport, they definitely stick out. Uh, They definitely fit into this conversation as well. Here's a good one. The 1980s Islanders with 19 playoff series wins in a row. Right, and we saw that uh, we saw that you know the Lightning got up to what eleven, I guess it would have been before they lost in the Avalanche. We all talked about what an incredible accomplishment that was. Yeah, the Islanders added eight straight more on top of that before they eventually lost. Uh, in the Bob and Nanaimo says in the 1980s, Gretzky had more five-point games than zero-point games. That's just a phenomenal statistic. That one is, it's hard to wrap your head around, even though I know it's true. But that is just true, true dominance. 650-650, if you have more thoughts about examples of guys lapping the field in their sport in the same way that Aaron Judge is doing in the home run race in Major League Baseball this year. I'm Jamie Dodd. few more minutes here until Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah take over with Canuck Central. Again, we are live on location at Andrew Sherritt. Together with Milwaukee, Andrew Sherritt is hosting a series of sales events across BC. Come check out their products with Milwaukee reps. Get exclusive one-day deals. Enjoy a barbecue. Plus, every purchase enters you into a draw for either an M18 Fuel 2 tool combo kit, hammer drill and impact driver, or an M18 Fuel Power head string trimmer. So come down. Andrew Sherritt on East 1st in Vancouver. Check it out. We're here. Say hi uh, and check out some of the deals as well. Uh, we started off the show talking a little bit of Canucks, and of course Canucks Central is coming up next, so they will get back into that conversation. And one of the things I threw out there were, what are some of those new wrinkles that you want to see the Canucks coaching staff try with the lineup? Because, yeah, Bruce Boudreaux, yeah, he took over last year, but he's got a couple of new assistants. First opportunity at training camp uh, to really cook some different things up, and I'm curious to see what we will see in that regard and what people want to see as well. This one came which I thought was interesting. I want to see the Canucks try Pedersen on the point for the power play. I also want Bruce to try different things to get our top three centers around 18 minutes per night double shifting as the fourth line center or double shifting on the wing for example. And the point about usage with the centers I think is a really, really good one. And whether it's double shifting, and look, that that will happen naturally as you're, you know, down in the third period or whatever the game situation is. That will dictate the usage to a, to a certain point. But they're definitely in a situation where it can't just be normal three-line usage like you would see, right, where it's your top two lines and then your bottom two lines. Because they have that depth down the middle at center, 
you're going to have to get a little bit creative and, yeah, find ways to get all of Elias Pettersson, JT Miller, and Bo Horvat different time on the ice and different opportunities to thrive and kind of carry the load that they're all expected to load. Thanks for texting in. That's going to do it for me today. Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah, they're on site. They're ready to take over. We're live on location at Andrew Sherritt. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.